0: Tale number four of five tales. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by David Wales. Five Tales by John Galsworthy. Tale number four: The Juryman, Part One. From Tolstoy. Don't you see, brother, I was reading yesterday the gospel about Christ the little father, how he suffered, how he walked on the earth. I suppose you have heard about it?" Indeed, I have, replied Stepaniewicz. But we are people in darkness. We can't read. Mr. Henry Bosengate, of the London Stock Exchange, seated himself in his car that morning, during the Great War, with a sense of injury, major in a volunteer corps, member of all the local committees, lending this very car to the neighboring hospital, at times even driving it himself for their benefit. Subscribing to funds, so far as his diminished income permitted, he was conscious of being an asset to the country, and one whose time could not be wasted with impunity. To be summoned to sit on a jury at the local Assizes, and not even the grand jury at that, it was in the nature of an outrage. Strong and upright, with hazel eyes and dark eyebrows, pinkish-brown cheeks, a forehead white, well-shaped, and getting high, with grayish hair glossy and well-brushed, and a trim moustache, he might have been taken for that colonel of volunteers which, indeed, he was in a fair way of becoming. His wife had followed him out under the porch, and stood bracing her supple body clothed in lilac linen. Red rambler roses formed a sort of crown to her dark head. Her ivory coloured face had in it just a suggestion of the Japanese. Mr. Bosengate spoke through the whir of the engine, I don't expect to be late, dear. This business is ridiculous. There oughtn't to be any crime in these days. His wife-her name was Kathleen-smiled. She looked very pretty and cool, Mr. Bosengate thought. To him, bound on this dull and stuffy business, Everything he owned seemed pleasant, the geranium beds beside the gravel drive, his long red-brick house mellowing decorously in its creepers and ivy, the little clock-tower over stables now converted to a garage, the dovecot masking at the other end the conservatory, which adjoined the billiard-room. Close to the red-brick lodge, his two children, Kate and Harry, ran out from under the acacia-trees and waved to him, scrambling bare-legged on the low red ivy-coloured wall which guarded his domain of eleven acres. Mr. Bosengate waved back, thinking, "'Jolly couple! By Jove they are!' Above their heads, through the trees, he could see right away to some downs, faint in the July heat haze, and he thought, "'Pretty a spot as one could have got, so close to town. Despite the war, he had enjoyed these last two years more than any of the ten since he built Charmley, and settled down to semi-rural domesticity with his young wife. There had been a certain piquancy, a savor added to existence by the country's peril, and all the public service and sacrifice it demanded. His chauffeur was gone, and one gardener did the work of three. He enjoyed, positively enjoyed, his committee work. Even the serious decline of business and increase of taxation had not much worried one continually conscious of the national crisis and his own part therein. The country had wanted waking up, wanted a lesson in effort and economy and the feeling that he had not spared himself in these strenuous times, had given a zest to those quiet pleasures of bed and board which, at his age, even the most patriotic could retain with a good conscience. He had denied himself many things—new clothes, presents for Kathleen and the children, travel, and that pineapple house which he had been on the point of building when the war broke out new wine, too, and cigars, and membership of the two clubs which he had never used in the old days. The hours had seemed fuller and longer, sleep better earned. Wonderful the things one could do without, when put to it. He turned the car into the high road, driving dreamily, for he was in plenty of time. The war was going pretty well now. He was no fool optimist. But now that conscription was in force, one might reasonably hope for its end within a year. Then there would be a boom, and one might let oneself go a little. Visions of theatres and supper with his wife at the Savoy afterwards, and cozy night drives back into the sweet-smelling country, behind your own chauffeur once more, teased a fancy which even now did not soar beyond the confines of domestic pleasures. He pictured his wife in new dresses by J. She was fifteen years younger than himself, and paid for dressing, as they said. He had always delighted, as men older than their wives will, in the admiration she excited from others not privileged to enjoy her charms. Her rather queer and ironical beauty, her cool, irreproachable wifeliness, was a constant balm to him. They would have dinner-parties again, have their friends down from town, and he would once more enjoy sitting at the foot of the dinner-table while Kathleen sat at the head, with the light soft on her ivory shoulders, behind flowers she had arranged in that original way of hers, and fruit which he had grown in his hothouses. Once more he would take legitimate interest in the wine he offered to his guests once more stalk that Chinese cabinet wherein he kept cigars. Yes, there was a certain satisfaction in these days of privation, if only from the anticipation they created. The sprinkling of villas had become continuous on either side of the high-road, and women going out to shop, tradesmen's boys delivering victuals, young men in khaki, began to abound. Now and then a limping or bandaged form would pass, some bit of human wreckage, and Mr. Bosengate would think mechanically, another of those poor devils. Wonder if we've had his case before us. Running his car into the best hotel garage of the little town, he made his way leisurely over to the court. It stood back from the market-place, and was already lapped by a sea of persons having, as in the outer ring at race-meetings, an air of business at which one must not be caught out, together with a soaked or flushed appearance. Mr. Bosengate could not resist putting his handkerchief to his nose. He had carefully drenched it with lavender water, and to this fact owed, perhaps, his immunity from the post of foreman on the jury, for, say what you will about the English, they have a deep instinct for affairs. He found himself second in the front row of the jury-box, and through the odor of sanitas gazed at the judge's face expressionless up there, for all the world like a bewigged bust. His fellows in the box had that appearance of falling between two classes characteristic of jurymen. Mr. Bosengate was not impressed. On one side of him the foreman sat, a prominent upholsterer known in the town as Gentleman Fox. His dark and beautifully brushed and oiled hair and moustache, his radiant linen, gold watch and chain, the white piping to his waistcoat, and a habit of never saying, Sir, had long marked him out from commoner men he undertook to bury people, too, to save them trouble, and was altogether superior. On the other side, Mr. Bosengate had one of those men who, except when they sit on juries, are never seen without a little brown bag and the appearance of having been interrupted in a drink. Pale and shiny, with large, loose eyes shifting from side to side, he had an underdone voice and uneasy flabby hands. Mr. Bosengate disliked sitting next to him. Beyond this commercial traveller sat a dark, pale young man with spectacles. Beyond him again a short old man with grey moustache, mutton-chops, and innumerable wrinkles. And the front row was completed by a chemist. The three immediately behind Mr. Bosengate did not thoroughly master. But the three at the end of the second row he learned in their order of an oldish man in a gray suit, given to winking, an inanimate person with the mouth of a mustachioed codfish, over whose long bald crown three wisps of damp hair were carefully arranged, and a dried, dapperish, clean-shorn man, whose mouth seemed terrified lest it should be surprised without a smile. Their first and second verdicts were recorded without the necessity for withdrawal, and Mr. Bosengate was already sleepy when the third case was called. The sight of Khaki revived his drooping attention, but what a weedy-looking specimen! This prisoner had a truly nerveless, pitiable, dejected air. If he had ever had a military bearing, it had shrunk into him during his confinement. His ill-shaped brown tunic, whose little brass buttons seemed trying to keep smiling, struck Mr. Bosengate as ridiculously short, used though he was to such things. Absurd, he thought, lumbago, just where they ought to be covered. Then the officer and gentleman stirred in him, and he added to himself, still there must be some distinction made. The little soldier's visage had once perhaps been tanned, but was now the colour of dark dough. His large brown eyes, with white showing below the iris, as so often in the eyes of very nervous people, wandered from face to face of judge, counsel, jury, and public. There were hollows in his cheeks. His dark hair looked damp. Around his neck he wore a bandage. The commercial traveller on Mr. Bosengate's left turned and whispered, Fellow to say my hat, what a guy! Mr. Bosengate pretended not to hear. He could not bear that fellow, and slowly wrote on a bit of paper, Owen Lewis, Welsh. Well, he looked it not at all an English face. Attempted suicide, not at all an English crime. Suicide implied surrender, a putting up of hands to fate, to say nothing of the religious aspect of the matter, and suicide in khaki seemed to Mr. Bosengate particularly abhorrent, like turning tail in face of the enemy, almost meriting the fate of a deserter. He looked at the prisoner, trying not to give way to this prejudice, and the prisoner seemed to look at him though this, perhaps, was fancy. The counsel for the prosecution, a little, alert, gray, decided man, above military age, began detailing the circumstances of the crime. Mr. Bosengate, though not particularly sensitive to atmosphere, could perceive a sort of current running through the court. It was as if jury and public were thinking rhythmically in obedience to the same unexpressed prejudice of which he himself was conscious. Even the Caesar-like pale face up there, presiding, seemed in its ironic serenity responding to that current. Gentlemen of the jury, before I call my evidence, I direct your attention to the bandage the accused is still wearing." He gave himself this wound with his army razor, adding, if I may say so, insult to the injury he was inflicting on his country. He pleads not guilty, and before the magistrates he said that absence from his wife was preying on his mind. The advocate's close lips widened. Well, gentlemen! if such an excuse is to weigh with us in these days i'm sure i don't know what's to happen to the empire no by george thought mr bosengate the evidence of the first witness a roommate who had caught the prisoner's hand and of the sergeant who had at once been summoned was conclusive and he began to cherish a hope that they would get through without withdrawing and he would be home before five but then a hitch occurred. The regimental doctor failed to respond when his name was called, and the judge, having for the first time that day showed himself capable of human emotion, intimated that he would adjourn until the morrow. Mr. Bosengate received the announcement with equanimity. He would be home even earlier, and gathering up the sheets of paper he had scribbled on, He put them in his pocket and got up. The would-be suicide was being taken out of the court, a shambling, drab figure with shoulders hunched. What good were men like that in these days? What good? The prisoner looked up. Mr. Bosengate encountered in full the gaze of those large brown eyes, with the white showing underneath. What a suffering, wretched, pitiful face! a man had no business to give you a look like that." The prisoner passed on down the stairs, and vanished. Mr. Bosengate went out and across the market-place to the garage of the hotel where he had left his car. The sun shone fiercely, and he thought, I must do some watering in the garden. He brought the car out and was about to start the engine, when some one passing said, Good evening." Seedy-looking beggar, that last prisoner, ain't he? We don't want men of that stamp." It was his neighbour on the jury, the commercial traveller, in a straw hat, with a little brown bag already in his hand, and the froth of an interrupted drink on his moustache. Answering curtly, "'Good evening,' and and thinking, "'Nor of yours, my friend,' Mr. Bosengate started the car with unnecessary clamour. But, as if brought back to life by the commercial traveller's remark, the prisoner's figure seemed to speed along, too, turning up at Mr. Bosengate his pitifully unhappy eyes. Want of his wife! Queer excuse, that, for trying to put it out of his power ever to see her again. Why, half a loaf, even a slice was better than no bread. Not many of that neurotic type in the army, thank heaven! The lugubrious figure vanished, and Mr. Bosengate pictured instead the form of his own wife bending over her Gros de Dijon roses in the rosary, where she generally worked a little before tea now that they were short of gardeners. He saw her, as often he had seen her, raise herself and stand, head to one side, a gloved hand on her slender hip, gazing as if it were ironically from under drooped lids at buds which did not come out fast enough. And the words Kaelin, for he was something of a French scholar, shot through his mind. Kathleen, Kaelin. If he found her there when he got in, he would steal up on the grass and—ah, but what great care not to crease her dress or disturb her hair? If Only she weren't quite so self-contained, he thought. It's like a cat you can't get near, not really near. The car returned faster than it had come down that morning, had already passed the outskirt villas, and was breasting the hill to where among fields and the old trees Charmley lay apart from commoner life. Turning into his drive, Mr. Bosengate thought with a certain surprise, I wonder what she does think of. I wonder. He put his gloves and hat down in the outer hall, and went into the lavatory to dip his face in cool water and wash it with sweet-smelling soap—delicious revenge on the unclean atmosphere in which he had been stewing so many hours. He came out again into the hall, dazed by soap and the mellowed light, and a voice from halfway up the stairs said, Daddy, look! His little daughter was standing up there with one hand on the banisters. She scrambled on to them and came sliding down, her frock up to her eyes, and her holland knickers to her middle. Mr. Bosengate said mildly, Well, that's elegant. Tea's in the summer-house. Mummy's waiting. Come on!" With her hand in his, Mr. Bosengate went on, through the drawing-room, long and cool, with sun-blinds down, through the billiard-room, high and cool, through the conservatory, green and sweet-smelling, out on to the terrace and the upper lawn. He had never felt such sheer exhilarated joy in his home surroundings, so cool, glistening and green under the July sun, and he said, "'Well, Kit, what have you been doing?' "'I've fed my rabbits and Harry's, and we've been in the attic. Harry got his leg through the skylight.' Mr. Bosengate drew in his breath with a hiss. "'It's all right, Daddy. We got it out again. It's only grazed, the skin, and we've been making swabs, I think seventeen.' Mummy made thirty-three, and then she went to the hospital. Did you put many men in prison?" Mr. Bosengate cleared his throat. The question seemed to him untimely. Only two. What's it like in prison, Daddy? Mr. Bosengate, who had no more knowledge than his little daughter, replied in an absent voice, um, Not very nice. They were passing under a young oak-tree, where the path wound round to the rosary and summer-house. Something shot down and clawed Mr. Bosengate's neck. His little daughter began to hop and suffocate with laughter. Oh, Daddy, aren't you caught? I led you on purpose. Looking up, Mr. Bosengate saw his small son lying along a low branch above him like the leopard he was declaring himself to be, for fear of error, and thought blithely, what an active little chap it is. Let me drop on your shoulders, Daddy, like they do on the deer. Oh, yes, Daddy, do be a deer. Mr. Bosengate did not see being a deer. His hair had just been brushed. But he entered the rosary buoyantly between his offspring. His wife was standing precisely as he had imagined her, in a pale blue frock, open at the neck, with a narrow black band around the waist, and little accordion pleats below. She looked her coolest. Her smile, when she turned her head, hardly seemed to take Mr. Bosengate seriously enough. He placed his lips below one of her half-drooped eyelids. She even smelled of roses. His children began to dance around their mother, and Mr. Mosengate, firmly held between them, was also compelled to do this, until she said, "'When you've quite done, let's have tea.' It was not the greeting he had imagined coming along in the car. Earwigs were plentiful in the summer-house, used perhaps twice a year, but indispensable to every country residence and Mr. Bosengate was not sorry for the excuse to get out again. Though all was so pleasant, he felt oddly restless, rather suffocated, and, lighting his pipe, began to move about among the roses, blowing tobacco at the green fly. In wartime one was never quite idle. And suddenly he said, We're trying a wretched Tommy at the assizes." his wife looked up from a rose. What for? Attempted suicide. Why did he? Can't stand the separation from his wife. She looked at him, gave a low laugh, and said, Oh, dear! Mr. Bosengate was puzzled. Why did she laugh? He looked round, saw that the children were gone, took his pipe from his mouth, and approached her, You look very pretty, he said. Give me a kiss." His wife bent her body forward from the waist, and pushed her lips out till they touched his moustache. Mr. Bosengate felt a sensation as if he had arisen from breakfast without having eaten marmalade. He mastered it and said, "'That jury are a rum lot.' His wife's eyelids flickered, "'I wish women sat on juries.' Why?" it would be an experience." Not the first time she had used that curious expression. Yet her life was far from dull, so far as he could see, with the new interests created by the war, and the constant calls on her time made by the perfection of their home life, she had a useful and busy existence. Again the random thought passed through him, but she never tells me anything. And suddenly that lugubrious, khaki clad figure started up among the rose bushes. We've got a lot to be thankful for, he said abruptly. I must go to work. His wife raised one eyebrow, smiled, and I to weep, Mr. Bosengate laughed. She had a pretty wit. And stroking his comely moustache where it had been kissed, he moved out into the sunshine. All the evening, throughout his labours, not inconsiderable, for this jury business had put him behind time, he was afflicted by that restless pleasure in his surroundings, would break off in mowing the lower lawn to look at the house through the trees, would leave his study and committee papers to cross into the drawing-room and sniff its dainty fragrance, paid a special good-night visit to the children, having supper in the schoolroom, pottered in and out from his dressing-room to admire his wife while she was changing for dinner, dined with his mind perpetually on the next course, talked volubly of the war, and in the billiard-room afterwards, smoking the pipe which had taken the place of his cigar, could not keep still, but roamed about now in the conservatory, now in the drawing-room, where his wife and the governess were still making swabs. It seemed to him that he could not have enough of anything. About eleven o'clock he strolled out into the beautiful night, only just dark enough, under the new arrangement with time, and went down to the little round fountain below the terrace. His wife was playing the piano. Mr. Bosengate looked at the water and the flat, dark water-lily leaves which floated there, looked up at the house, where only narrow chinks of light showed, because of the lighting order. The dreamy music drifted out. There was a scent of heliotrope. He moved a few steps back, and sat in the children's swing under an old lime-tree, jolly, blissful, in the warm, bloomy dark. Of all hours of the day, this, before going to bed, was perhaps the pleasantest. He saw the light go up in his wife's bedroom, unscreened for a full minute, and thought, aha! If I did my duty as a special, I would strafe her for that. She came to the window, her figure lighted, hands up to the back of her head, so that her bare arms gleamed. Mr. Bosengate, wafted her a kiss, knowing he could not be seen. Lucky chap, he mused, she's a great joy. Up went her arm, down came the blind, the house was dark again. He drew a long breath. Another ten minutes, he thought, then I'll go in and shut up. By Jove, the limes are beginning to smell already. and the better to take in that acme of his well-being, he tilted the swing, lifted his feet from the ground, and swung himself toward the scented blossoms. He wanted to whelm his senses in their perfume, and closed his eyes. But, instead of the domestic vision he expected, the face of the little Welsh soldier, hair-eyed, shadowy, pinched and dark and pitiful, started up with such disturbing vividness that he opened his eyes again at once. Curse! The fellow almost haunted one! Where would he be now, poor little devil, lying in his cell thinking, thinking of his wife? Feeling suddenly morbid, Mr. Bosengate arrested the swing and stood up. Absurd! all his well-being and mood of warm anticipation had deserted him. A damned world, he thought, such a lot of misery! Why should I have to sit in judgment on that poor beggar and condemn him? He moved up on to the terrace and walked briskly, to rid himself of this disturbance before going in. That commercial traveller chap, he thought, the rest of those fellows, They see nothing." And abruptly turning up the three stone steps, he entered the conservatory, locked it, passed into the billiard-room, and drank his barley-water. One of the pictures was hanging crooked. He went up to put it straight. Still life, grapes and apples and lobsters. They struck him as odd for the first time. Why lobsters? The whole picture seemed dead and oily. He turned off the light and went upstairs, passing his wife's door, into his own room, and undressed. Clothed in his pajamas, he opened the door between the rooms. By the light coming from his own, he could see her dark head on the pillow. Was she asleep? No, not asleep, certainly. The moment of fruition had come, the crowning of his pride and pleasure in his home. But he continued to stand there. He had suddenly no pride, no pleasure, no desire, nothing but a sort of dull resentment against everything. He turned back, shut the door, and, slipping between the heavy curtains and his open window, stood looking out at the night full of misery, he thought, full of damned misery. End of Part One